Hey everyone, and welcome to the Races IndyCar podcast. My name is J.R. Hildebrand, and we're here to take a look at the Gateway Weekend where the championship was turned on its head, and Roman Grosjean made an exciting IndyCar Oval race debut. Jack, have you have you caught your breath after the weekend? Well, it's kind of amateur hour because I've, I've I've turned up an hour late to recording and given you a <laughs> terrible script to read. So yeah, that's uh, that's a good start to the pod. But yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, I, I guess watching Gateway, I was kind of thinking. I bet J.R. Hildebrand wishes he was in an IndyCar right now because that looked like the kind of weekend Definitely. where you would have kept your nose clean and, and done something pretty sensible and given yourself a pretty good result at the end of that race. I was, I was kind of thinking this is made for a bit of J.R. Hildebrand oval dominance. It would have been a good one. There's no doubt. We, uh, I was definitely, I was, I was watching thinking, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> like there's, there were a lot of, a lot of situations where if you had a good car, I think you, you could have, I mean, obviously we have the the benefit of hindsight looking at it now, but uh, you know, a lot of guys that, that frankly, you know, didn't do anything other than just stay out of trouble ended up, you know, with, uh, with good top 10 runs there. And um, you know, gateway just, I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you break it down, but you know, from my perspective, Gateway has turned into just a great short track. You know, when we when we first went back there in 2017, they had just repaved it. The cars were super high down for us. It was like almost flat track the whole way around for the whole race. Like if you couldn't just keep it pinned, you were going to be slow. Um, you know, now it's it's on the it's almost on the verge of having like you know a half an extra lane on both ends of the track, which which is when IndyCar racing at those places starts to get exciting. Well, I think credit to IndyCar because the the second race of the doubleheader last year was pretty pretty boring in terms of not a lot of passing going on, and it was really difficult to use that second lane. But it seems like IndyCar listened and adapted that into the schedule, and everyone knows a a, a night short oval race is always better than a than a day one. So. Uh, I don't know if that was the exact reason why IndyCar chose to have the race at night, but it, it definitely definitely helped things for sure in, in terms of improving, well, at least making the racing more exciting. I don't know if it improved it, but it was definitely easier to overtake than it was last year. So I guess that's a good thing for us. We always do a brief summary at this point and, and kind of break down the race. Will Power took pole, but he was quickly jumped by Colton Herr. And then we proceeded to have five cautions in the first 75 laps, as presumably most of the drivers had forgotten how to drive on a short oval. Maybe that's... I'm being a bit facetious there, maybe that's a bit harsh, but uh, just thought it'd be a little bit of fun. On lap 66, the key move came as Rina VK locked up into turn one on a restart and took out points leader Alex Pillow and third in the championship, Scott Dixon. So we'll definitely get into breaking that down shortly. Under the following caution, Joseph Newgarden leapt ahead for the trademark stop from the number two Penske team. In the second round of stops, Hurts has surged into the lead, but by lap 185 of the 260, his drive shaft had given way and Newgarden took over once more. He looked commanding and Pato Ward couldn't eat into New Garden's lead, even with a late caution. Dixon said, we've had erratic and crazy driving in the kind of post-crash interview that he gave. And Joseph Newgarden backed that up with his kind of post-race comments in the press conference. Even Pato Ward pointed his finger at Alexander Rossi for not leaving enough room in that crash. Um, so JR, what do you make of IndyCar driving standards at the moment? It's a tough one to call because I feel like, frankly, if we were just to take a step back from it, we have this kind of stuff happening every year. There's always, there's always a point in time during the season where this is a, this is a discussion that we're having just after a, a run of a couple of races, um, you know, now particularly looking back at Nashville, the Indy GP you know, we talked a little bit about Joseph in particular, having to do some damage control there, but um, it's, I think it's personally, I think it's just a function of how close this championship is, how close the, com- the competitiveness of the series is. 
frankly, and that we're going to a lot of tracks where there's just not, there's not a lot of margin, like Gateway in particular as a short oval is a place where if everybody's, let's just say for the sake of argument, everybody's on the same strategy, you're talking about cars that are on the same strategy, you've got a window of sort of like 10 laps, the beginning of a stint when the tires are good, that you can even really take advantage of a car in front of you making a mistake. And after that, you know, we saw for big portions of this race, it's kind of single file. It's just hard to get enough of a run on a short track like that, that doesn't, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that it seemed like there was maybe part of a second lane opening up. There was no legitimate second lane. Like we're not talking about, you know, guys being able to run side by side through the corner. We basically never saw that happen um, successfully through the course of the race. And that's, that's what you need for this to really become a, a, a racier sort of track from that perspective. So um, every driver in the field knows that basically that they're going to have a, a small window when the tires are good, that they're going to need to take advantage or be super like optimistic basically about their chances to, to make a pass. And um, this is, I, I think, just what you end up with, basically. I mean, we, we've gotten to the point now where we're talking about crazy, erratic driving from like guys that are in the top 10 in the championship that are among IndyCar's best drivers. So I, I guess I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time looking at it from the outside, you know, saying this is a, this is a problem that's fundamentally gotten worse or there's specific drivers in the series that have become uh, bigger offenders from this perspective over the course of some period of time or whatever. Um, you know, the IndyCar product is just such that it's really close racing. It's really tight. Every position matters. Every position is you can be anybody on the track and you're fighting against the guy in front of you, whether they're a championship contender or not, you know, that's, that's just the, you know, kind of good, bad, or otherwise, like that's the reality of IndyCar racing right now. So I guess I don't, I'd, I'd throw a little cold water on the idea that this has gotten worse. Um, but, but clearly I think the thing that we're seeing now in particular, just over these last few races is coming into the home stretch, like the final few races where the points really do matter, we've had this impact the championship contenders to varying degrees now fairly significantly, just in terms of the things that we're seeing happen on track. And that starts to become something along with, you know, blue flag rules and all this kind of stuff that, that maybe, you know, I, I think for me, it gives me pause for a moment to at least consider is this something that there needs to be a discussion around? I mean, that was something that that was thrown out uh, at the end of this event. I, you, you may remember who it was that mentioned it. I can't off the top of my head, but somebody sort of saying like, "We need to get every, we need to get all the drivers together." One of the drivers saying, "We need to get all the drivers together and have a discussion about this." And I, I personally agree that that's the best course of action moving forward because this does come down to. Uh, uh, it comes down to, I think, having an awareness of who you're driving around, what the implications are for different people that it's for, for some drivers, it's not just 
like where they're going to end up in that race. It's, it's greater consequences as we get later in the season. And, um, and that at the end of the day, I think that can be addressed, uh, in through the context of just the respect that you have for your fellow competitors. Um, and that, that can't, I think that there's a chance at least that that has as great an impact as, race control doing anything in particular, basically. It was Renus VK who called on the drivers to come together and have a bit of a chat about this. And I think that I agree with you. I think that's a good place to start. I think I think from some of the drivers who are complaining, there's an element of frustration from just getting out of the car and things not going like Dixon and Newgarden particularly should be even higher up in the points than, than they are and have had a lot of things not go their way this year. And when that happens, obviously you start to look for places to direct that anger and frustration at, at what's happened in your year. I think I've written a feature about this for the race and I, I think I've, I've kind of come to a similar conclusion to you in how you've summed it up. But I think growing pains is the kind of phrase that I use that we're, we're getting to a point where the standard is so high, as you were alluding to, that people are just getting more and more desperate to make moves stick because, as you said, every position counts and no one's driving at 95% at the moment. There's there's no one who's leaving anything in the tank and some of these moves are, are just born out of frustration, I think, and just people feeling the the championship coming to a head now, knowing that they're driving for their, many of them driving for their careers and for their, for their next deal next year and are in the spotlight. And I think this always tends to happen a little bit towards the end of the year where we start to see people, you know, maybe not, you know, I don't think anyone's been particularly dangerous in that gateway race in, in how they've, you know, driven. But I think, I think a combination of it coming to the end of the year and people kind of fighting for their futures and, and also, uh, you know, an element of, you know, not being on a short oval for a, for a little while now and, and things being a little bit rusty there maybe. And just people kind of, a lot of the incidents were just people not giving enough space where, if you know, if we were talking about the second race at Gateway last year, where you know there'd been three short oval races up to that point in the season, I think we'd see people being a lot more kind of open and and sort of a bit a bit kinder to each other in terms of, especially the first sixty laps of the race. Like how many of those moves really needed to happen at that point of the race? That, that it was just unnecessary. And you know, I think that Renus is perfectly right that everyone just needs to get in a room and some people need to just let rip and just get their frustrations out and and really you know, let their kind of thoughts be known. And some people just need to, you know, just talk about it and just work out what, what we can do to, well, what they can do to, to kind of help the situation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, I think hearing from some of the championship contenders, just listening to how they, how they're feeling in some of these situations for guys that maybe aren't even haven't been at fault or haven't been involved in any of those things. It's just, if you've never been in that spot before, sometimes it's worth hearing and and kind of understanding where they're coming from at the end of a race or as they get to the end of the season. Uh, it's just, it's, it's something that I think IndyCar drivers might uniquely be able to have that discussion among each other uh, just because it is a pretty close community and there is, it is so unique. What, what, we, you know, sort of, we do in terms of mixing disciplines and all that kind of stuff. And I would, frankly, I would agree with you that the lack of ovals on the schedule, just the racecraft, and even just your sort of spatial awareness is just different. You know, you're not, it's there, it's a place like gateway is a weird mix between sort of the way that you approach passing on a road course, but it's just, it's not a road course, you know? And that you can't, you can't run it, you know, with uh, Ed Jones and Graham Rahal, like, you sort of can't run a guy wide like that. 
like you can on a road course, you can totally get away with that on a road course. But if you do it on an oval, Graham's going to get up in the gray and he's just going to crash and his race is going to be over if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't keep you tight, basically, like he's, he's not trying to like, at that point, he's not even trying to keep Ed Jones from passing him. He is, but he's equally just trying to defend against getting up in the gray and crashing himself. Like that's basically, that's a dynamic that's unique to oval racing. So I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's just one of the things, it's one of the components of all of this that definitely comes into play. You're right to raise that incident, I think, because that summed up everything that was wrong with that race, in my opinion, that, that crash with Ed Jones and Graham Ray Hall, because I think Ed, as Graham pointed out, Ed was a good like car's width off the bottom of the track. And when you've got a car outside, that's not acceptable because you are going to take that car out up the top. I think if Graham could go back and replay that incident, he wouldn't have even put his car there. He would have just backed out and not gone around the top. And I think that was the perfect example of that, you know, not needing to race that hard at that point of the race. And don't get me wrong from a, from a driving perspective. I don't think Graham did anything wrong there. That was totally Ed Jones's fault. But I think if in, in hindsight, Graham, shouldn't have been putting himself in that position with, you know, 60 laps on the race with another 200 to go. So that was the kind of perfect example of the give and take that's needed on a short oval that wasn't really there at the weekend that we didn't quite see from people. And one of the reasons why we had so many incidents, I think. Yeah, I agree. So after all that, Jack, we should explain how the Dixon Pillow VK crash influences the title picture with two weeks off uh, before our three race West coast swing finishes the season. So I'll let you take that away and kind of explain where we're at. Well, the man we keep saying isn't consistent enough and isn't going to be a, isn't going to quite get there to be, you know, the champion at the end of the year is now leading the championship. So that's going well, <laughs> I guess we, we've, I think we, we, we're often maybe a little bit too harsh on our McLaren SP given where they're at in the trajectory of that team. And obviously so many new people coming in and so many new processes being involved and, you know, that whole thing being kind of tied together and that, you know, they are inconsistent and they have got a, an inconsistent car, but when, when the peaks are there, Pato delivers and the team delivers. And that was another, you know, great example. The last two races have been a great example of Pato taking the points that were there and being more, you know, he, he quite often alludes to, he should be more Dixon-like or he tries to be more Dixon-like in the sense of he needs to take the points that are there to him and, and not kind of over push or, or do anything drastic to try and, you know, claim points that aren't really there. So, you know, I think Pato is, if he's not analysed Scott Dixon, then he's he's definitely a distant admirer and likes the way Dixon races. And obviously everyone should be, you know, to a certain extent trying to mirror what Dixon does over the course of a season because it's 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 proved successful for him six times. So I think that's a, you know, a, a great strategy. But yeah, Pato Award takes the lead now. He was 21 points behind Alex Pelot coming into this race and is now 10 ahead. So that's a good position to be in. I think Pato will be looking at the last three races thinking tested at Portland and was fastest there, tested at Laguna pre-season with Juan Pablo Montoya there. So they're potentially going to be two good tracks for him, or at least the groundwork's been laid for for, for the potential to be there for them to be competitive in those two races. I think, as he mentioned, Long Beach on the podcast last week, Pato, as he mentioned, Long Beach might be a tricky one. They don't really know because they've been quite good at the street circuits, but St. Pete was a bit of an anomaly there and they didn't really... Kind of, I don't think they've kind of figured out exactly what was wrong at St. Pete. So that'll be, yeah, I think Long Beach will be an interesting one, especially when Andretti and Ganassi will be so strong in that race. We just know they will. And that, that's going to make the, the title kind of scenario quite interesting for Pato. Joseph Newgarden, we should mention, he was 55 points behind going into this race. 
after if you listen to the last pod we kind of broke down him being like barged off the track multiple times and still managed to make that overcut strategy work and finish eighth which was you know could be vital for him at the end of the season if we look at things because he came in 55 points behind to the last race now he's only 22 behind and definitely in the picture so we'll talk about him in a minute Dixon has dropped quite a few points but did he really I mean uh, I think he dropped eight points in total over the course of that crash I think if you said to most drivers you're going to lose eight points to the front of the championship with with a crash. I think they'd take that. Obviously, it's not ideal because he's quite a bit back with three races to go, but we can never rule out Scott Dixon. And Marcus Ericsson chipped away another two points at his deficit. So he's 60 points behind. Uh, I still think he he's a bit of a distant challenger now, especially now Newgarden and Dixon are properly in the mix and a, a little bit ahead. I think it's going to be difficult for Marcus to overturn you know, the likes of Joseph, Scott, and also... Pato and Alex as well. So I think that's going to be a difficult one for him, but I think he's still definitely in the picture. So one of those people not on the list, JR, is Colton Herter, who at one stage had a deficit of 60-something points in that race. He'd obviously chipped away so many points by leading the race at that point. Uh, I guess, you know, he probably would have won the race if his drive shaft hadn't broke, or at least he would have been very, very close and challenging Joseph for the victory. Given Herter's bad luck at Texas, where he had the, I think it was a bearing issue, wasn't it, with the wheel and then uh, a gateway last weekend as well. Do you think he's one of the hardest done to people in, in IndyCar 2021? I guess I look at it maybe from a slightly different perspective, which is just that he's, I think he's the guy to me that the results least uh, accurately reflect how fast he's been generally over the course of the season. That's kind of a mixture of, you know, he's made a couple of mistakes. Obviously we, we covered that at, um, at Nashville a couple of weeks ago, but he's just the guy to me that if you looked at his, you know, sort of sheet at the end of the year, it's just not representative at all of the potential that he's had this season. And that there's certainly been a number of situations where that's not been his fault at all that, you know, he's ended, I mean, the drive shaft thing, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, he selected first gear. It had, you know, tires rolling before they drop the car to the ground. Like that's a little bit of a no, no, but also something that guys do and you don't usually have that happen. So it's not, I mean, it's not, it's, it's kind of, it's something that used to happen, I think kind of a lot, but um, you know, since they've implemented the fuel probe sensor and all that kind of stuff, it's rare that you're, it's rare that you're in gear or allowed to be in gear basically before the car is in the ground anyway. So it's, it's not like a, it's not something that you're, you're hearing a lot about over the radio or being reminded of. Um, and so I think if I've, I think if I've interpreted correctly, uh, from my kind of post-race understanding of the situation, I think the drive shaft was broke before that pit stop. Mm. And that was one of the reasons why the wheels were kind of rolling before he hit the ground because it, the drive shaft was already okay. broken. But I think that's something we need to, uh, chase up a little bit more and find out a little bit more about that and how that whole, whole kind of situation works. Cause I don't think we can say with absolutely definitely that the reason why the wheels were spinning before he hit the ground was the drive shaft. But I think it's something we should, uh, I think it's something I'll dig a bit more into JR. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I was watching it, it. It looked bizarre either way to me, basically, because the typically you've got your foot on the brake while they're doing the tire change. And I, I guess in my experience, you don't typically take your foot off the brake until the car is on the ground and you can't select first gear until the fuel probe is out there's a sensor there that doesn't allow you to shift from neutral to first until the sensor is clear um, of the fuel probe. So just the whole, from that perspective, I mean, I guess to your point, the whole thing did look kind of bizarre, but 
I, I, when I was thinking about it afterwards, it was like, well, whether he selected for a skier or he had his foot off the brake or whatever, some combination of that happened to allow the wheels to turn one way or the other. It's still got brakes attached to it. So, um, I mean, this, this used to happen, you know, with the old car actually like kind of frequently, like once every couple of races to somebody, because you just get a little antsy because you didn't have to wait to select first gear, um, you know, for the fuel probe, fuel probe to be out. I mean, I can remember, I don't know why it comes to mind, but I feel like it happened to Marco, a bunch. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it was a, obviously just a lousy situation for him. We, we, we weren't, I mean, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that he was going to end up sort of with the victory by the end of that all. It seemed like he was going to have to be doing quite a bit of fuel save on the final stint. But either way, he was certainly in the hunt. If he'd have made it to the end, I mean, he would have made it to the end with the cautions that ended up coming out. Um, they probably would have saved his sort of fuel deficit to to Joseph and the rest of the guys uh, that were running up front. So, you know, without question, he's a guy that if his season had just gone a little bit differently in terms of a, a few a few things here and there, uh, he'd be right in the thick of this championship hunt and and obviously isn't. I suppose, you know, the other one on that list is Joseph Newgarden that we've talked about. You know, Dixon obviously just recently has had some issues that have that have held him back. But Newgarden throughout the course of the year, um, in terms of a driver that's sort of from our perspective, from my perspective looking at it, just has had some bad luck. Um, but he's you know, managed to pull it together and be right there in the races that have counted otherwise and get some of those results that maybe, you know, Colton hasn't quite been able to pull together in the, in the, we'll call it off weekends. Um, he's right in the mix and, you know, I don't know. I I'm interested in what you thought of his demeanor and comments post race track. I, I felt like he was awfully determined and sort of optimistic about his chances at this point. I think he's got the bit between his teeth now, hasn't he? I think he knows, I think he's probably simultaneously happy and a little bit annoyed. Uh, he'll, he'll definitely be annoyed with, he'll definitely look back at the, the qualifying incident at Nashville as a, you know, a big opportunity missed because of where he is in the points now and how close he's, he's become. But I think it's, he's another one like Herter, as you've described, where the, the points don't really reflect the season because I can't really think of a, up until the last up until recently, I can't really think of many races where Joseph hasn't been like top a top five car on on pace, whether it's been a mechanical issue that's taken him out or or strategy that's taken him out. I, I I think he's been in the mix pretty much everywhere he's been this year, and I think that's why he's going to be so dangerous at the end of the year. And I know I know you always kind of like to look at who's going to be the next person to kind of emerge as that dominant force in in IndyCar through the season. And I, I don't think we're going to get anyone win the last three races by any means. I think none of the contenders are going to win more than one race to, for, for the rest of the season, in, in my opinion, I don't think, uh, just because of how close everything is. But I think Joseph could go and win any of the last three races. And I think where we've got question marks over other people for various reasons, I, I don't think we can have any question marks over Joseph for any of the last three races. I think he could go and win any of them. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And I think he was really unlucky not to win last year's championship, although Dixon was a worthy champion in, in the end. But I think... He drove better last year than he than he probably has this year in terms of there's just been one or two you know one or two maybe more mistakes than he would have liked this year I think than than the year before because I think 2020 was that was the most bulletproof championship loss I've ever seen in my experience in in motorsport I genuinely spent the spent a good portion of the end of last year trying to work out where Joseph could have picked up you know a few extra points and it, it just wasn't really I just couldn't really find it and 
you know, maybe someone who's a better journalist than I am will be able to, but I really struggled to break down <laughs> and find somewhere where Joseph made any sort of major errors last year. And this year he's made a couple, but still deserves to be in the championship hunt. I think he's had as much bad luck as, 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 as much bad luck as he has made mistakes. So uh, he, he definitely deserves to be in this fight. And he's one of the interesting ones that we've not been speaking about in recent weeks, but really has emerged into someone who's, you know, if you're Pato Award and Alex Pelot and you're looking and Joseph Newgarden's 22 points behind with three races to go, I think you're pretty nervous. Yeah, I think that uh, you can talk to Simon Paginot about, uh, you know, Gateway a couple of years ago. Joseph's just not a guy you want in your review mirrors towards the end of the race either. You know, he's he's got, uh, you know, almost, uh, we used to say this about Justin Wilson, that he was just like, you know, a Doberman with a hand grenade in his mouth at the end of the race. Like you just didn't want to see it coming after you, you know, like it was, he wasn't going to crash into you. It wasn't going to take you out. It wasn't, it was just, it was just going to happen. And he was going to blow by at some point, you know? And, uh, and so I think that's, you know, there's, there's a bunch of guys that have that sort of, you know, Pato's the same way. You wouldn't want Pato being the guy with five to go. That's, you know, right on your tail. But I think Joseph, Joseph and the two team, they just have, they have sort of a grit um, that I just don't, they're just going to, they, they just grind away at it, you know, in a way that I don't, you know, Dixon and the nine crew or the other group over the course of the, of a, over the course of a season that do that. But I feel like new garden and the two guys just during the race, during the races, while you're watching the race, they, they do that and just wear people down in a way that, nobody else does as consistently as they do. So it's, it's interesting looking at the next bunch of races. Like I don't really think there's, there's no one event that's coming up between Portland Laguna. And I mean, frankly, Laguna is a place that, you know, Joseph's not been awesome at, um, but, but, but among those three races, there's not one that I would pick out and say, Oh, he's like the favorite going into that event. But to your point, like he's going to be right there like they're going to figure it out. So I think that's, that's pretty much where we're at. I think he's one of those guys who's got that common thing of it's almost like he feels like he has a right to win the championship. Like he he's, he deserves that championship and it should be given to him. But I think where he's some, where he could be marked as a little bit different to maybe some drivers out there is that he, he delivers on it every week and the, the work ethic and the, the kind of, the fostering of the team spirit kind of behind the scenes and, and all that kind of stuff that he does that maybe people don't see is, is kind of why he deserves to, he does deserve to win it. And he has that kind of aura of looking like a person who believes that he does deserve to win the championship every year and he deserves to win every race of the year, because that's just the mentality that he, he kind of brings to the table. I guess we head into a two weeks of break now and then we go to Portland. So given everyone, everything we said about this team's inconsistency in 2021, and how Newgarden and Dixon are fully in the mix. Do we think O'Ward and Aaron McLaren SP can can really pull this off now? I do, frankly, basically just based just based on where they're at and the races that we're going to. Um, you mentioned earlier they've they've def- they'll definitely have the pace. I think at all three, so they'll be a contender. For, they'll I I would be surprised for Pato not to be at least knocking on the door of the top six in qualifying at every event, you know, I don't think he's not going to qualify. I, I'd be shocked if he qualifies outside the top 10 at any of these places. Um, so he's going to, he's going to be a, a contender for pole, I think at, at any of these tracks. 
you mentioned earlier about St. Pete. St. Pete is an anomaly. It's also just an anomaly in terms of the track surface. And it's not like, like you don't take your St. Pete setup to other places and, and vice versa. Um, to me, you know, they've been quite strong at other street circuits over the course of the year. I think they'll be fast at Long Beach. I mean, yes, it's a, yes, it's an unknown. Yes, we know that Andretti and Ganassi, and for that matter, the Penske guys, they've all been really good there over the last few years. But I don't see Pato being like outside of that mix, just on pace, at least. The question mark that we continue to, you know, kind of have as an unresolved part of the Arrow McLaren SP sort of equation is. What are they, what's, what's their race pace really going to be like over the course of a stint at any of these places? These are, these are all tracks, maybe long beach aside, long beach isn't super hard on tire deck, but the other two, if your stuff just starts wearing out and goes away faster than the guys around you and thing gets loose and, and you're losing a lot of rear grip over the course of a stint, um, that is going to make it hard. So I think if there's anything that could become an Achilles heel for Pato and, and the, McLaren guys, I think it's probably it's it's potentially that. But um, you know, he's in the catbird seat right now. And I mean, I don't, you know, he's got plenty of confidence when we talked to him, you know, last week or whatever, like he was ready to rock and roll. And I feel like he's ready to take this thing to the end and he's not thinking too hard about it. And if it's there to be taken, like he's more than capable of executing on that when it counts. We don't have any kind of Aro McLaren SP relevant data for Long Beach, but Schmidt Peterson always been pretty good at, at Long Beach. Obviously, Hinch was in the top 10, I think, the two years before the pandemic kind of stopped that race. And he won the year before that in, in 2017 with them. So, um, you know, we know the team's changed a lot. And so has IndyCar. And, you know, IndyCar's changed over the last three months, never mind the last uh, four or five years. But that's uh, that's never a bad sign to know that you've won that race as a team before and, and one of the few few wins that team had had in, in recent years. So that's a good result to have. I guess we can't leave now without discussing our old pal Roman Grosjean. Uh, I wanted to get the driver's perspective from you about just how tough it is after one test and a short practice to be launching it down the inside of a driver who's been doing ovals most of their lives at turn three at Gateway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I was super impressed watching him. I mean, there's there were definitely some... I had, I guess I had sort of two takeaways from from watching the race from, from his perspective or, you know, watching him in the race. One is he was definitely putting some, putting the car in some places that I think other guys weren't putting their cars in those places because they've gotten caught out too many times by doing that and having it go wrong. So just the, there was a, a big chunk of the race where he was, you know, sort of not fuel saving while other guys appeared like maybe they were, and he was just like freight training through the mid pack. Right. And it was super impressive to watch. Like there was other guys who were trying to do that and weren't. So it's, it's all credit, all credit to him in that situation. But, um, he was, he was doing it by entering the turn like quite high and late and then crossing over the wake of the car in front of him to get sort of clean air on the exit. And we talked about this briefly, actually about Pato at Texas, that if you can do that, if you can manage to get, uh, inside 
you know, if you can, if you can manage to get to the inside to get the like left front wing, some clean air at corner exit for between mid corner and the exit, you are going to get a run on the car in front of you. And you're just going to have the momentum rolling in your favor at that point, you know, one end of the track to the other lap to lap. Like if you can get the car working and you can get the right feel for it and you get the tools adjusted so that that's how you're able to run relative to the cars and cars around you, you are going to start passing cars and go to the front if it's possible at all. Uh, so we saw that from Roman. The the flip side to that is you saw him also get like nervous and loose, not, not nervous in the cockpit, like the car getting nervous on the track um, pretty frequently over the course of that happening. And I, I couldn't help but sort of watch that thinking, okay, you know, you don't normally get away with that happening that many times, basically, you know, and that's a credit to, to his skill, basically like his reaction in the car. But there was a little bit of it that kind of when you, what you don't know, like doesn't hurt you, you know, to some degree when, when it's, when it's the, when it's new and you're doing it for the first time, certainly from just like a, you know, if you were just to draw a track map, exactly what he was doing from a racing line perspective is like, well, if you can do it, definitely do it. Uh, but the reality of it is, uh, that doesn't, it doesn't really work that way in all, in all circumstances because of the dirty air and the turbulence in the wake from the car in front of you. So it, it's, it happens pretty frequently that as if you're bending in late and you're starting to add steering to cross over the wake of the car in front of you, that the car becomes just like a total POS for like that brief period of time. Um, and it had better be really stable or else you're going to end up just firing it off. So I feel like he, he probably learned a little bit on both sides of that coin throughout the course of the race. Cause he did have some, some little hiccups, um, you know, earlier on, obviously getting caught offline. It, it, it appeared as though that's what happened, uh, when he lost a bunch of track position sort of after that stint in the race, uh, was maybe he just, you know, got a little wiggle or, or, or didn't have the front end on the car and got up in the gray. Um, but all in all, I mean, I just, I would look at that event as for him, not from the outside judging where he's at or whatever, but for him just as like an extraordinary success in terms of the amount of experience that he got, he obviously went into it just, you know, guns blazing, like, you know, eyes open to the different opportunities and the sort of you know, he was being creative. He was trying some different things. He was getting a feel for the car. He's obviously just got a really good feel for the car to be able to do some of those things and not have it go more kind of sideways on him literally. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's walking away with just a wealth now of things to think about for the next time he does this plenty to talk about with, uh, his engineer, Olivier teammates, you know, wherever he's going to end up next year, um, you know, uh, 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 so it just, at the end of the day, I think a tremendously successful venture for him. He looked the part, he looked comfortable and, uh, it'll be really interesting, you know, be interesting as he progresses. I, you know, I'm making the assumption at this point that he's going to be running at Texas and Indy and, and Iowa and the rest of these places next year. Um, you know, getting on the super speedways and kind of the drafting mechanism and, Arrow wash and all that kind of stuff there. It'll, uh, it, it struck me. I was expecting him to look good 
frankly, we've talked about that a little bit. Like, I don't think the fact that, you know, in terms of where he's, it's, it's sort of where I've been willing to say, I think that he should be considered among the championship contenders, just in terms of his performance this year from like back the first time that we talked about this, um, you know, it was sort of based on just watching him race at the other places and get used to a, just a car that he doesn't know um, at tracks that he doesn't know how quickly he's picked that up and, and kind of found, you know, the right way of, uh, you know, approaching that he's certainly done the same thing here. And, um, I would, I would expect that he'll just continue to get better at that going forward. I think just to add to that, JR, I think maybe the thing that impressed me most was when you look at IndyCar rookies, usually you've got, you know, an off season where there's probably a chance for a test like Scott McLaughlin did last year. Then you go into a some sort of oval race, which is usually Texas now before the Indy 500. And then you've got a month of running at the Indy 500. And then you go to a short oval a bit later in the year. And obviously the way Roman's done this, he's obviously gone late in the year to Gateway, which just so happens is a one-day event with practice, qualifying and a race all on the same day. So there's no overnight opportunity to look at the data and kind of just reflect on what's happened to you over the past 24 hours because everything happens in the day. There's not a lot of chance to change the car and make yourself more comfortable because as soon as the car starts qualifying, it's gone into part Fermi. So there's nothing you can do to the car apart from change the pressures and the wing, the front wing angle. And that's, that's like basically the sum total of the major changes you can make. So given, given all of that to, to, to be, I think really knocking on the door for a top 10 had the strategy played out there in, in that race to, to be in that position. And, and obviously we're talking about the fact that what nine cars got taken out of the race. So <laughs> top 10 sounds less spectacular when you say that, but I, I still think if you'd have said to him, regardless of what happened in the race, you can finish top 10 in this race. You'd have absolutely bitten your hand off to, to take that result. And I, I just think that's what impressed me most was the things you mentioned about how he was managing to save the car when he was obviously being super aggressive in in, in his making his moves and, and really just keeping things, you know, keeping things together. But also just that, that learning curve that he's gone through in a day. Uh, I can't imagine a worse, basically, preparation to, to feel comfortable in an IndyCar and Oval than, than what he did. And he did a fantastic job. So I, for one, am really excited about the potential for him having an off-season now where he can go and test at Indy before doing Texas and then a proper full run at the Indianapolis 500. That would, that would be absolutely awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. We will be back next week, even though it's kind of not off season, but there's a little break for, for the IndyCar guys. We'll be back, JR and I, with a very special guest to talk about his season so far. I'm not going to give it away. As usual, I'm going to I'm going to tease that on JR and just leave it there for people to have a little think about who it might be. And yeah, we'll catch up with you on next week's episode. 